0: Hello, a quick message before we begin. We at The Economist hope you enjoy listening to our podcasts as much as we enjoy making them. We're always looking for ways to improve, and to do that, we would like to know more about you, our listeners. Please help us by filling out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash world ahead survey. The link is in the notes for this episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Over eight episodes, we're discussing the key questions from geopolitics to climate change to economics that will prepare you for 2023 week we're considering the energy crisis that's been caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how it might unfold in the coming year.
1: Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. And therefore, in any event, whether it's a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready.
0: Many European countries that used to rely on natural gas imported from Russia are now having to find ways to do without it. That poses huge challenges. But does it also present opportunities? Germany is one of the countries that was most dependent on Russian gas. And this is how some German consumers are doing their bit.
2: In the shower, we put one of those water-saving shower heads on, which I don't love. Wash my hands in cold water. Yeah, just heating less, lights off. Things like that.
3: Definitely last year I had kind of like very tropical temperatures in my house. And then this year I don't even have the heating on yet. So I've been making up for it by just um, wearing more layers and like sleeping with more blankets and that type of stuff.
0: The big difference this winter has been wearing a hat indoors. Yesterday I bought some slippers for the first time. I mean, I haven't turned the heating on yet and would ideally try to avoid doing it before January. Two of my economist colleagues who are watching the situation closely and wondering what it means for the future of energy in 2023 and beyond are Vijay Warren, our global energy and climate innovation editor, and Kat Braik, our environment editor. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tom. Vijay, let's start with what's actually happening. How has the war in Ukraine affected the price and the availability of oil and gas around the world? What's the big picture?
2: Well, There's no surprise here. We are in the midst of the greatest energy shock in 50 years. In fact, 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the original oil shocks of the early 70s. In many ways, this is a more powerful and potent shock because the world is much more interconnected and globalized. So we're seeing the linkages. Europe had an energy crisis before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We must remember there was a winter with very high energy prices, gas and transmitted into the power markets a lot to do with how Europe's energy markets were restructured and organized poorly and an excessive reliance on natural gas spot markets. That crisis was made much worse and taken advantage of by Putin using energy as a weapon. And so, in effect, we saw that crisis in Europe become a global crisis as Europe consumed a huge amount of liquefied natural gas, that is, gas that's frozen and put on ships that was meant to go to Asia. Those cargoes were redirected at very high cost, and that has sent global natural gas prices much higher. We've also seen oil prices go high in the course of the year. It's also depriving developing countries that had hoped to have that gas as LNG, as liquefied gas, because they've been priced out by Europe hogging up that gas.
0: So it really is a replumbing of the, of the flow of hydrocarbons. Kat, what's the impact been on consumption and on emissions overall since the war began? What, what are we burning more of and less of and what does that mean?
1: The thing that a lot of us have been talking about since the beginning of all of this is obviously the the fact that coal is enjoying a bit of a, a boost, as it were, which is not great in terms of the climate, obviously, it being the dirtiest of fossil fuels. I tend to look at these things in terms of the emissions, as you say, because ultimately, from the climate perspective, it all comes down to what ends up in the atmosphere. And there, there's actually been some really interesting numbers. Most recently, the Global Carbon Project, which is this mega outfit of climate researchers and data analysts worldwide who every year crunch all the numbers and look at what actually it means in terms of of gases pumped into the atmosphere came out with their annual report and showed that in fact the global picture all in all is maybe not as grim as it might seem. So 2022 is projected to see A 1% increase in CO2 emissions as a result of fossil fuel consumption. COVID makes things a little bit messy. There was obviously the drop of roughly 5% in CO2 fossil emissions in 2020. That rebounded roughly in equal measure in 2021. Now this 1% increase compares to a sort of average 3% increase that you'd see every year in the, the 2000s. So we're seeing a slowdown, actually. The picture is very variable if you look at different countries, different regions, and also the sort of activities that are driving this. So one thing that I found interesting is actually a lot of that increase is coming from the continued rebound of aviation post-COVID. You do see a massive increase in coal emissions in India, and also in the EU. So we're seeing a very dynamic and diverse picture worldwide. But the overall picture in terms of fossil CO2 emissions is actually, I think, headed in the right direction. We seem to be heading towards potentially, I always hesitate to say this because, you know, you want to see several years of data, but potentially towards a plateau and maybe a peak.
0: The um, International Energy Agency is talking about fossil fuel emissions peaking in 2025. So that actually looks plausible, despite the fact that Europe and other countries are suddenly burning lots of this cheap, dirty coal as as a way to make up for a lack of gas.
1: I think probably what we're seeing is a short-term response to the war and the energy crisis, but a long-term signal that is very much committed to decarbonisation. And so the story of the next few years really is to see how those two play out against each other.
0: Okay, well, before we come on to that, let's just look at the immediate energy crunch in Europe as we're going into the winter now. Now, so far, it's been quite a mild winter. Vijay, which countries are most exposed to reliance on Russian gas in the past? And how have they been responding? And do you think Europe might run out of gas this winter?
2: So the good news is partly because it's a mild winter thus far, but also because Europeans did a very, very good job of filling their storage units of natural gas. Europe will not run out of gas this winter on almost all forecasts. However, that's not as good news as it sounds, because what this creates is a much bigger gap to fill for next winter, should the war continue, should energy continue to be used as a weapon. So Europe is not out of the woods by any means. The effects will be different in different countries. Some smaller countries in Eastern Europe, for example, far away from where the liquefied natural gas facilities tend to be located on the western shores of Europe, as well as the big countries like Germany and Italy, which are heavily reliant on gas for their particularly industrial infrastructure. Now, those are the most vulnerable. The way that the countries have responded, though, is really what we have to look at. And what I mean by this is Europe has introduced subsidies, price caps, bailouts, other means of basically government coming into the marketplace to protect consumers and taxpayers from the high price of energy that the wholesale markets are offering to the tune of over 500 billion euros already. And the clock is still ticking on that. There's more to come. And roughly half of that is in Germany. Hardly a couple of billion euros being spent by Sweden, just to give you a comparison point. And so that massive intervention by governments will have an effect on, at least in the short term, until that money runs out, how the energy crisis is felt in different countries. And some countries are poorer, Some countries are more indebted. The countries of Southern Europe, for example, have much lower capacity to keep spending like this should this crisis go a long time than some of the more, let's say, frugal or or conservative Northern Europeans. And so we have to watch this space. At the moment, there's a buffer because of that subsidy and the lavish uh, spending by government.
0: OK, so we have financial buffers and we have lots of gas storage for this winter, but it's going to be next winter. That's the real question. Kat, coming back to you and uh, the International Energy Agency. So Fatih Birol, the head of the IEA, recently said that the war in Ukraine is a turning point in the history of energy that will accelerate the clean energy transition. So how might that happen? And crucially, how quickly can that happen?
1: Sadly, the answer to how quickly is always, in terms of climate, not quickly enough. And certainly, I don't think we'll be seeing that acceleration immediately over the next 12 months. That turning point, however, is really interesting because as somebody who's covered the climate for a very long time, I've seen three such episodes where there's been this sort of sense of a crisis that was going to actually finally turn the tide on climate change. The first was the financial crisis in the late 2000s. The second was COVID. And the third is this sort of war slash energy crisis. do
0: Do you think it's really going to happen this time?
1: I mean, look, if you go on the IEA numbers, I think there's a chance that we've finally hit a sweet spot where the calls aren't just coming from climate activists or climate scientists. But actually, the whole thing is backed up by political signaling and a buy-in from the private sector, which means that this crisis might actually be the one so that So this does. time
0: around, there's an economic reason to do it because it's actually cheaper to use renewables than fossil fuels when prices is that high. And secondly, there's a geopolitical reason, which is that even if Russia cuts prices, people don't want to buy its gas anymore. So yeah. you suddenly have these two actually non-climate related reasons to switch away from – those fossil fuels.
1: There is now a sense of focus on energy security where renewables actually seems like an element or a recipe for energy security. Now, I always wonder if we're being blind to some other dynamics there. But it's it's interesting that in the past, those two interests have not necessarily aligned. And we're seeing that now with the Russian crisis.
2: BJ? I think Kat made an excellent case for optimism here. We do see policy, particularly in the United States, which has passed its most important climate law in its history, the Inflation Reduction Act. And we see developing countries, India very notably, very much for reasons of energy security, import substitution, made in India sort of domestic industrial policy, is going very quickly on renewables, green hydrogen and related technologies. Indonesia is keen to switch off of coal towards cleaner energies as well. So I think we're seeing a new kind of momentum. I would caution, though, That just because now solar is the cheapest, let's say, form of new generation, which it is in most countries, doesn't mean we'll suddenly have 100 times as much solar panels installed or or the rates of adoption and implementation that the scenarios call for to get towards net zero. The reason is supply chains, sourcing of materials, some of the rare earths that are required. There's numerous things that could bung up the green revolution, as we argued in a cover story last year. And I think that sort of problem is going to lead to a slower rollout than would be hoped, even if policy is supportive.
1: We're in a rare case where VJ is being the negative and I'm being the, <laughs> the, the positive thing here. I would say, though, that the coal story is really interesting. Just in the past 12 to 24 months, to see a real commitment to phasing down and eventually phasing out coal Worldwide, with investment flowing from rich to poor, we saw this in South Africa. We saw this with the most recent Indonesian deal. China stopping its foreign investments in in new coal. All of that is a real change of landscape compared to where we were five years ago. So I think the bottom line is it's all encouraging. None of it is ever fast enough to meet our very ambitious climate goals.
0: Okay, but this could be um, weirdly a silver lining in the conflict, which is that it accelerates the movement towards net zero. Well, thank you both. In a moment, we'll consider some of the other energy technologies that might get a boost from the current situation. But first, a quick reminder, if you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, you're missing out. For unlimited access to our journalism, including our coverage of the energy crisis and the fight against climate change, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage, and I'm talking to my colleagues Vijay Vaithaswaran, our global energy and climate innovation editor, and Kat Braek, our environment editor, about the outlook for energy and the environment in 2023. Europe's gas crunch means many countries are accelerating their investment in renewable energy. But solar and wind may not be the only beneficiaries of the desire to diversify away from fossil fuels in general and Russia gas in particular. Nuclear power and hydrogen have also moved up the agenda. Here's Daryl Wilson, Executive Director of the Hydrogen Council, which is an initiative to promote the hydrogen economy.
3: Historically, there's been lots of ups and downs in hydrogen, and I've been working in this field for 15 years and I've seen those happen, but now is definitely different. I would say with a greater focus on decarbonization and confidence that, that costs are going to come down, much like we saw with wind and solar. Now there's a broader appreciation of the business opportunity of hydrogen in the developed world and also a recognition that other countries that are in the process of development with rich renewable energy resources can now participate in the renewable energy future. At the Hydrogen Council, we're now tracking more than 650 projects globally at megawatt scale and greater, worth more than 260 billion in investment, as well as 100 billion in public investment. So we've never seen hydrogen scale to this level ever in the past. And so I would say hydrogen has moved up substantially on the global agenda as it's recognized as a critical part of the solution to climate change. Inevitably, there's a lot of work here to do to implement these solutions. But I think we're going to look back on this period as as the critical time where everything changed for hydrogen.
0: VJ, you've covered hydrogen for many years now. Do you share this optimism? I mean, hydrogen, as we heard, there, has had many ups and downs in the past, hasn't it?
2: Oh, you're absolutely right, Tom. And, and for that reason, I cover hydrogen with a certain kind of guarded optimism, I would say.
0: The fuel of the future, but it's always the fuel <laughs> that's of the future, right. right?
2: But let's remember Jules Verne wrote about hydrogen 160 years ago in The Mysterious Island. So,
1: But he got so much else right.
2: <laughs> well, that's the reason, right? It could be just a matter of time. However, I would say, you know, it's important to keep that kind of skeptical eye, but not jaundiced eye about the claims that are being made. The first thing to remember, which is often forgotten by people who speak about hydrogen, is it's not a substitute for a primary energy source. Hydrogen is an energy carrier. It's like electricity. You have to make it from something. And that something can be dirty. It can be made from, let's say, fossil fuels, as it is now, overwhelmingly. Or in future, it could be made from non-carbon sources, Many people are betting on wind and solar. It could also be made from nuclear and some other approaches that are novel and where startups are flourishing in this area.
0: So this is basically where you you use energy to split water into oxygen and hydrogen, and that gives you the hydrogen.
2: Exactly right. Once we keep that in mind, that this is a tool, it's a fuel. It's not a magical substitute for coal or suddenly going to replace wind and solar. In fact, it's probably going to double the requirements for wind and solar. If we really embrace a hydrogen economy, we're actually going to compound the problem of how do we build all the solar and wind. Now we're going to need even more to make all the green hydrogen. So there are some challenges that are related and associated with it that need to be addressed. Having said that, one has to ask, why are people enthusiastic about this now? Or what's the, the real use cases? And that's where I think that the reason for hope comes. If you take a 30-year view, we have to do deep decarbonization. We have to get to Zero and net zero, and the only way to really get it, the hard-to-abate sectors, heavy industry, for example, long-distance shipping and transportation, uses of very high-temperature heat, uses in agriculture, making cement, steel, these are applications where just having loads of windmills and Teslas ain't going to get you there. However, you can use hydrogen. And once you get that use case in mind and say, okay, this is the place we need a solution, this is a very promising one. It's still expensive, but we know how to buy down the cost. As the cost of solar comes down, then you suddenly see a pathway to getting much cheaper green hydrogen, as it's called. To me, that's the exciting thing. It also gives you a way of thinking about the use cases that don't make sense. For example, Toyota, one of the world's biggest car companies, is spending oodles of money to make passenger cars running on hydrogen I don't think that makes any sense. We have perfectly good electric cars. The technology is excellent and getting cheaper by the day. It doesn't actually serve as a good use of that relatively scarce hydrogen and that solar or wind energy that's probably going to make that green hydrogen to go into that. But some companies are barking up those kinds of wrong trees.
0: Okay, so there's kind of more realism about hydrogen. It could be useful in things like industry and long distance shipping, for example, but mad to put it in cars, which was, I think, sort of some of the focus of previous hype cycles around hydrogen. Where are the emerging global hotspots of the hydrogen economy then? Where can we see this sort of new new economy emerging?
2: So there are a couple of ways to answer this. Europe has been hot and heavy on hydrogen for a number of years now and has big support from government in the form of regulation, promulgations, subsidies. However, Europe has taken kind of a bureaucratic approach that is there's a thicket of green tape to figure out is your hydrogen startup or your electrolyzer manufacturing operation, those are the devices that make the hydrogen, is it going to be eligible for that subsidy or that tariff? And so it's been a little bit slow going, even though that's where most of the interest has been the last five years. The new boy in town is the United States. And with its new climate act known as the inflation reduction act it's providing a massive subsidy three dollars a kilogram which just to give you an idea would immediately put many places in the u.s that can make green hydrogen today uneconomically suddenly competitive or even cheaper than making that hydrogen from dirty sources like coal or natural gas and it's simple compelling and clear anybody that turns up and makes that green hydrogen in america will get that subsidy and a lot of foreign companies, frankly from Europe and elsewhere are now suddenly switching their interests over to the United States. I've met Canadian companies, even companies in India, which is one of the new emerging hotspots for hydrogen, in part because it has among the best solar potential in the world. So the input energy is very cheap and the government has got excellent policies to support it. So the big business houses like Reliance, Adani Group, one of the big energy conglomerates, are betting tens and tens of billions of dollars on clean energy and hydrogen. So watch for India to be a hotspot too
0: wall of money heading towards hydrogen, it would seem. Now let's turn to nuclear energy. Kat, how have its prospects changed in the past year?
1: Yeah, a bit of a a mixed bag there. I think as the supply of gas from Russia has has basically been cut off. A lot of European countries have been rethinking their approach to nuclear. And so we're seeing the lifespans of nuclear power stations being extended, actually not just in Europe. We're seeing that in the States as well, where there are subsidies being kicked into gear in order to, to keep plants that were due to be shut down running. But some of that seems fairly short term. I mean, we're talking about infrastructure that is existing and that's basically being put on life support. In the long term, the signal in the UK is definitely towards more nuclear. We saw that in recent weeks with announcements from the UK government that its Sizewell C power plant was going to get go ahead. And in fact, they were taking Chinese investment in Sizewell C out and replacing that with UK government investment. So, There's a commitment there. The problem with nuclear is always the same, right? They don't deliver on time and they deliver over budget. It's an incredibly expensive way of making electrons. However, It is also a relatively reliable way once you do actually have the plant of making electrons and of making it in ways that are not subject to the vagaries of the sun and and the wind. And so I think a lot of people have a very love-hate relationship with the future of nuclear energy for that reason.
0: So, we've seen then these existing nuclear power stations. It makes sense to run them for as long as possible. Don't turn them off Germany, for example, and don't cancel the ones you're planning to build Britain. In France, though, they had a problem this year, didn't they, where a lot of their nuclear power stations weren't working for for some reason. What was going on there?
1: The issues over the summer related to water supply in the midst of a, a heat wave and a water crisis and maintenance. The water issue is resolved. The maintenance issue is not. EDF is, as I understand it, constantly forecasting downwards its expectations of nuclear generation next year. So that issue is still very much in crisis. Okay.
0: Vijay, did you want to come in on nuclear?
2: Yes. So we've made the case at The Economist for decades that we need to have nuclear energy as part of the mix. It has baseload power capacity. It is relatively carbon-free. So we're supporters of nuclear. But I have to say, I've been observing this for many, many years. I've been to nuclear plants around the world. It is the most expensive way to boil water. That's the joke in the industry. (laughs) Whereas with technologies like solar, where year after year we've seen incredible cost reductions, learning by doing, what we find is that every new nuclear power plant is more expensive than the last. It's an industry that's forgetting by doing. And so there is something structurally wrong with how the industry works, with how it's regulated. So I don't have a lot of hope that just doing the same thing that we did in the past is going to get better. On the other hand, to end on a note of optimism, there are radically different designs, small modular reactors, startups that promise a much smarter, almost a Silicon Valley approach to developing future nuclear technology. Now those are going to take five to 10 years to prove out, but I'm much more hopeful that we'll see the future of nuclear power of new plants come from that kind of innovation hotbed than from just doing the same tried, tested, and failed approach of the past.
1: Tried, tested and failed, VJ. But wait, hold on. Isn't that the story about hydrogen? OK, we're just going to have to
2: um, <laughs> wait
0: and see on that one. Thank you very much, VJ and Cat.
1: Bye, Tom. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about energy markets and technologies and what to expect in the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash ahead 2023 Next week we'll ask what new buzzwords and jargon might catch on next year. Do you know what a deadpool is? Join us to find out. This episode was a tempo and talker production for The Economist. The producer is Anouk Mie and the executive producer is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.